Pfizer has submitted its COVID-19 vaccine to the FDA for emergency use authorization for children aged six months to four years. A new variant has emerged, and it may be more transmissible than the original Omicron. But scientists don't believe it'll cause another surge. Billionaire Mark Cuban launches an online pharmacy for generic drugs, and President Biden relaunches his cancer moonshot. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. There are few moments in life as singular as childbirth. For the parents out there, you know there's no moment that changes you as suddenly as meeting your new child for the first time. It's a rush of joy and gratitude, excitement and responsibility that fundamentally changes you. For a long time, though, giving birth was one of the most dangerous things a human could do. That handoff of life from mother to baby too often failed. One or both, mother and baby, wouldn't make it through. It took millions of mothers' lives right in their prime. And if they lived... Too often, they had to bury their infants before they even had a chance at life. For the past couple of weeks, we've been planning to have a conversation about this relationship between mother and baby, and how, even in 2022, there's a lot of work to be done to protect it. I had the privilege of interviewing Congresswoman Lauren Underwood on this topic about two weeks ago, and you'll hear that interview later on in the episode. But after I sat down for that interview, a tragedy too close to our hearts and too close to our topic today occurred. Our friend Tommy Vitor, co-host of Pod Save America and Pod Save the World, and his partner Hannah, they just recently lost their daughter, born at just 24 weeks. First, I want to say our hearts go out to them and so many others who've suffered a loss too profound to fully describe in words. When Tommy and Hannah shared this news with the Crooked family, they asked that we get out the word about a handful of groups in the Los Angeles area. There's Baby to Baby, an L.A. nonprofit that provides children living in poverty with diapers, clothing, and basic living necessities. The Star Legacy Foundation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to reducing pregnancy loss and neonatal death. And BabyQuest Grants, a nonprofit providing fertility grants to those who can't afford costly procedures like IVF and egg freezing, all of them are fantastic organizations doing great work. If you want to show your love for Tommy and Hannah, please do support these groups. We'll have the link at the end of the episode and in the show notes. As I reflected on the conversation I got to share with Congresswoman Underwood, I'm drawn back again to how close maternal and infant mortality are to so many of us. To me, it's also personal. Somewhere in Alexandria, Egypt, are buried an aunt and uncle I never got to meet. They too died in infancy. My grandmother carried the scars of those losses through her whole life. My father, their eldest brother, remembers their passing vividly. It's something he can't really discuss without tearing up. Right here in America, in 2022, the death of a mother or infant at that tenuous moment is thankfully rare but it's far less rare if you're black. Black people die in pregnancy or childbirth at three to four times the rate of their white counterparts. And even if they make it through, black babies die at two to three times the rate. It's shameful that in the richest, most powerful country in the world, race and misogyny and the persistent legacy of injustice against black people in the forms of slavery, segregation and compounded structural and institutional discrimination continue to threaten the lives of some of the most vulnerable people we have. In a high-income society like ours, childbirth shouldn't be so deadly. It shouldn't be deadly at all. And the fact that it still is for so many black people should be a stain on our moral conscience. But there are leaders around the country who are working on solving it. I'm proud to have had the opportunity to work alongside incredible black women leaders like Leslie Welch, whom I interviewed back in season one, episode eight. Together, we built a program called Sister Friends that partnered new expecting mothers in Detroit with peer mentors called Sister Friends. We used the program to take a 360-degree view of the challenges that pregnant people faced in doing routine things like getting to prenatal care appointments. One of the breakthroughs the team implemented was providing free lift rides to those appointments. Within a year of implementation, 
the black infant mortality rate dropped by a third and the black-white infant mortality gap dropped by 82%. These kinds of local solutions, they need to scale. And that requires federal leadership. And right now, there is no voice speaking louder for black maternal and child health than Representative Lauren Underwood. One of just three nurses, all black women in Congress, Representative Underwood brings her own personal experience with black maternal mortality and expertise as a nurse to bear on this work. Most recently, her comprehensive momnibus package of 12 bills to do everything from expand the perinatal workforce to protect birthing people in jails and prisons to improve data collection and analysis to improve our understanding. She joins us to talk about this work after the break. I just started mine, so when you're ready to go, uh, I am as well. Okay, yes. All right, can you introduce yourself for the tape? Hi, I'm Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, and I represent the 14th District of Illinois. I've been hoping to have Representative Underwood on the show for some time. Her leadership as a health provider in Congress and a champion of black birthing equity would have been enough. But she also graduated from the University of Michigan just a year after I did. So I knew it was going to be a great conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining our show today. I, I want to just jump in because as a public health um, professional and former health official, uh, it, it's frustrating that um, that there just is not enough representation of folks with healthcare backgrounds in, in Congress. And I hate to say it, those who share similar training to me as physicians tend to be on the other side of the aisle and tend to have some, some crazy opinions. One Rand Paul comes to mind. Um, but but you are one of three nurses in Congress. How does being a nurse in this moment in particular shape your public service? Yes, I am honored to serve with the legendary Eddie Bernice Johnson. She is fabulous. She's the chair of our Science, Space, and Technology Committee, and she's a nurse. And the dynamic Corey Bush, who just joined us last year with her election. Um, and she's pushing all of us forward uh, with this lens towards equity and justice. And, you know, one of the things I think that folks that don't know is that the three nurses in Congress were all black women. And mm -hmm. so it's really interesting to be able to do this work in an intergenerational way with kind of a range in ideology and really be on the same team to advance health equity and health and well-being for the American people. You know, my perspective as a nurse, it's really been surprising in a lot of ways because, you know, I didn't expect my interactions with my community to feel so similar to those interactions uh, with patients. So like people in my district will come to me and they'll be like, oh my God, Lauren, I need help. And there's some, mm. there's like this really intimate part of that exchange where they're very vulnerable and they're calling me as a last resort or coming to an event as a last resort. And in that interaction, it reminded me so much of learning how to introduce myself to a patient and and building that rapport very quickly. But that's like the foundational of that therapeutic relationship. And there's something, it's just, it's a very similar interaction. Mm -hmm. I will say that throughout my career, I've been very focused on helping the American people improve their health and well-being. And, and that work continues during my time in Congress. I've been very clear that that is why I'm here. That's why I ran in 2018 and how I won is focusing on these healthcare issues. And um, I'm grateful to be able to 
lead in the Congress, you know, really with this unique perspective as a House Democrat with a healthcare professional background. Yeah, I love that parallel because I, I think the overwhelming lesson from my experience in medical school that I take with me every single day, even though I don't really practice, is the ability to sit with someone in pain and listen. Yes. And I think that is a cornerstone of good public service. Unfortunately, too few public servants either understand how to do it or do it very well. But uh, I can imagine, you know, in, a, in, in any clinic or hospital, the folks who directly care for patients are nurses. And there is an, a caring, empathic approach that nurses take to their patients that if you can port that over to your public service, I can imagine will do wonders, most importantly for your constituents and, and also for you. I also think that there's something really important in understanding from the ground level how the healthcare system tends to pile up on folks. And that's patients and providers alike. And I, I really appreciate that you, that you bring that to the halls of Congress uh, every single day. Um, one area in which you've distinguished yourself is your service on maternal health equity. And yeah. I know that part of that is, is rooted in a, in a very painful personal experience with a close friend. Do you mind sharing that with us today? Yep. Uh, before I get to the maternal health, I just want to say that, you know, I come from a swing district, you know, a very purple area. And one of the things I think is so important is when you're willing to listen, when you're willing to show up with folks, it doesn't matter if you agree. Mm. It's you're not it, it takes like this partisanship mm -hmm. kind of out of that conversation because people want to be heard. They want to be seen. They want to be acknowledged. And they, they're they looking for solutions, even if it's not necessarily the solution that they would have identified. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for, you know, your audience of healthcare providers or people who care about healthcare, right? Like this is an opportunity to build those connections, which are so powerful in this time when people are scared to talk to their neighbor and talk to their family members um, because the division in our country runs so deep. And so I just, I didn't want to let that pass. In the maternal health space, you know, I ran in, I launched my campaign in 2017. I was 30 years old and I had just lost a dear friend of mine. Her name was Dr. Shalon Irving. Uh, I met Shalon during my graduate program at Johns Hopkins. She was, had enrolled in the program already as a dual gerontologist and sociologist. She already had a PhD. Brilliant. Mm. Um, and after we finished um, our MPH, she went on to become a lieutenant commander of the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. Mm. Wow. She was working down at CDC on health equity issues and found out she was pregnant and was so excited. And you know how it is with your friends, right? Like it, it, you can be in it with like, just share that joy. And so when I was wrapping up my service in the Obama administration in January, 2017, Shalon gave birth to this beautiful baby girl named Soleil. Mm -hmm. And literally three weeks later, she died from complications due to high blood pressure, preeclampsia. And, you know, it was stunning to me because in my clinical training, obviously, we had learned about, you know, health disparities, particularly related to maternal mortality in Black women. The data tells us that Black birthing people are three to four times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications than their white counterparts. There are similar disparities we see among Native and Indigenous people in the United States and rural communities in the United States. There's certainly some regional variation. And we know that the disparity... For Black birthing people, you know, if you control for factors like 
income, education, insurance status, prenatal care, right? Like all these things, the disparity persists. I knew this intellectually, but for this to happen to my friend, someone who had been doing this work um, was stunning. I remember going to her funeral and the CDC director was at the funeral talking about how stunning it was Mm. for Shalon to die in this way. And, you know, obviously we know that the healthcare system failed her, right? Like her death was preventable. And so I knew that if I won my campaign and I was elected to Congress, this would be an issue that I wanted to work on. When I was sworn in um, in January 2019, I became the youngest Black woman ever elected to Congress. And I think that representation matters. And part of the responsibility that we have when we enter these roles is to solve problems that never have received the full attention that they deserve. And we're talking about a disparity in maternal mortality that's been around in our country for decades. I mean, we've seen this disparity my entire lifetime and we'd never had a Surgeon General's report, right? We'd never had comprehensive federal action. And so I was really grateful to be able to find a great partner in Congresswoman Alma Adams. She is a representative from North Carolina whose daughter had what I would consider like severe morbidity, right? Like a very uh, severe complications related to pregnancy. And she shared this commitment and we launched the Black Maternal Health Caucus in April of 2019 to tackle this issue. Ultimately, because of the outpouring of interest from stakeholders around the country, we pulled together this comprehensive suite of policies that we call the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act to end our nation's maternal mortality crisis and solve this problem. Well, I really appreciate you sharing the story. I'm really sorry to hear about your loss and frankly, all of our loss in such a talented, capable person. And that's someone that we knew, but we also know that this epidemic steals lives in their prime in communities and uh, and cities across uh, across our country. And I appreciate you taking your pain and your experience and turning it into leadership uh, to take on the issue. You know, I, I worked in the city of Detroit as health director, and it was a primary issue for us. And, oh, yeah. You know it. And the reality of it is that we tend to think of ourselves in the United States as being a country that has moved beyond the kinds of deaths that rob uh, people of their lives, either at the beginning of their life in infant mortality or uh, in the prime of their lives um, in maternal mortality. You know, my grandmother lost two infants uh, before the age of one. They would have been my my aunt and uncle. I never got to meet. Um, but that was in that was in Alexandria, Egypt, in the sixties. Um, really? And the crazy thing is that the infant mortality rate in Detroit, when I took that position, was as high as it was in Egypt. And yeah. it is a failure in our society to have thought through what it takes to take this on. And the reality of it is, you know, both you and I were trained as healthcare providers, but so much of this disparity starts well before anybody gets into a clinic or a hospital. Can, can you talk to us about some of the antecedents of maternal mortality? What are the, 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 the experiences, um, social and, and societal and structural, that, that, that lead to the death of a mom around pregnancy and childbirth? 
Yes. So we see this in so many settings. I'm grateful that you shared, you know, your your journey and your perspective coming out of the city of Detroit and what's going on in Michigan. There are local initiatives to solve this problem throughout our country, often, you know, without what I would consider to be sustainable support. And so what we're trying to do is offer that, right? So we know that there are these things called social determinants of health, housing, nutrition, transportation that impact pregnancy outcomes. They do. And some people are stunned when we talk about it. But if you don't have access to proper nutrition, uh, so you're food insecure or experiencing homelessness in the various iterations that it presents, which we know for birthing people is a phenomenon across this country. If you lack access to reliable transportation to get to a healthcare provider that you trust, Right. Because that's the key here. Um, There needs to be that trust and uh, relationship uh, between the provider and the patient. You're more likely to have negative birth outcomes. The data is so clear on the nature of this problem. And we're learning more every day. So, for example, over the last year, we've seen national data come out published in, you know, the CDC's journal, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, describing the linkages of climate change, right? The impact of extreme heat and air pollution on maternal and infant health outcomes. I think that the biomedical evidence is so clear of the relationship between these social determinants of health and maternal health outcomes. But we cannot ignore implicit and explicit bias, Mm -hmm. aka racism. Mm -hmm. I think the healthcare system right now is very interested in having a conversation about implicit bias. I don't know that I am doing these things that lead to certain patients dying, right? I don't know that I am treating my Black birthing people uh, in a way that minimizes their pain, that discounts their reports Mm. of something being wrong, that it dismisses uh, their requests for additional attention. And so, you know, oops, my bad. Let me sit in a webinar Mm. (laughs) and learn about implicit bias, right? That is, listen, we appreciate the training. We appreciate the grand rounds. We appreciate the opportunities to learn from our colleagues about these biases that we bring to our healthcare settings. However... If we are going to save mom's lives in this country, we've got to be honest about the role of racism, a.k.a. explicit bias in the way that healthcare is delivered in our country and that that has been systemically perpetuated. And there is there is racism in our healthcare system. It manifests in any number of ways. Um, it undergirds the health disparities that we see across outcomes in healthcare. Um, But for maternal mortality, it is undeniably a culprit. And so what we try to do is create a space that's not punitive, but says, let's be honest and forthcoming about the nature of the problem so that we can advance solutions, not just to solve it in an abstract sense, but literally we're talking about a family that gets to be together instead of mom dying. That's what we're talking about. And and I think that right now we're in a really special moment. We're in our country. We are interested in having that conversation. We'll be back for more with Representative Underwood after this break. And we're back with more of my conversation with Congresswoman Lauren Underwood. 
it is easy to assume that everyone's blameless and that that there is not there there are not very clear and obvious culprits of this and you know to take those two points about both the structural and social determinants of health and explicit uh, racism every single time we misallocate our funds we decide not to invest in uh, in predominantly urban communities that are predominantly black whether it's the city of Detroit or it's the south side of Chicago or the west side of Chicago, we are making decisions that are explicitly racist, even if we don't call them that. And um, and the responsibility we have to take this on, to, to keep families whole because, because moms or babies are not dying, that is probably the most profound uh, responsibility that we have. It's basic stuff as a society. You've championed uh, what you call momnibus legislation. Yes. I love the name. Um, Thank you. Uh, can you walk us through what's in it? I know past the House, but uh, it's it's stalled, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But what's in the legislation? Sure. So the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act was first introduced in March of 2020, literally a week before COVID. I was so honored to work with then-Senator, now Vice President Kamala Harris, to introduce the Momnibus. And so then COVID sort of became all-consuming, rightfully so. So we reintroduced the Momnibus this year, or I guess it's 2022. So in 2021, we reintroduced it. We have a new Senate partner, Cory Booker, who is fabulous. And the Momnibus expanded from nine bills to 12. We added two related to COVID, Maternal Vaccination Act, right? For example, what we've seen, the data that like moms have not been, and, and birthing people across, so prenatal, postpartum lactating, not included in these clinical trials for vaccines or treatments for sure for the first month of the pandemic or first year of the pandemic. But, you know, these the problem among birthing people has continued. And now we're seeing like red alerts to pregnant people, encouraging them to get vaccinated because of the misinformation and the confusion Mm -hmm. among healthcare providers in this country. I mean, it's criminal what's happened. We added legislation to address the impacts of climate change in response to those data that came out. Um, and then other bills within the Momnibus, the social determinants legislation to address housing, transportation, nutrition assistance. We are expanding WIC for mom and baby in the Momnibus to 24 months. That's huge. Which is huge. Um, yeah, just just for listeners who don't know uh, what WIC is, it's women, it stands for Women, Infants, and Children. It is a, an incredible program that uh, takes on food insecurity and healthcare insecurity among moms and uh, and new babies, both through pregnancy uh, and into childhood. And right now, WIC ends at the first year, um, but uh, but this would extend it a whole another year. That's so critical. Ends at the first year for the baby. Right. Right. And so you get mom and baby to 24 months. It's it, it would be transformative for not Absolutely. only maternal and infant health outcomes, but for to end food insecurity in this country. Uh, this WIC expansion is essential. We when we designed the mommy bus, I just want to say that we did not want to be duplicative. We were trying to fill the gaps. So before I was you know sworn into Congress, we have had initiatives to expand postpartum Medicaid. And I want to shout out Congresswoman Robin Kelly, who is from Illinois, who has been working with Senator Durbin for a long time on this postpartum Medicaid expansion. And if we only could do one thing in this country, expanding Medicaid coverage to the full year postpartum 
save moms' lives, undeniably, right? Because we know that the Medicaid program pays for two-thirds of deliveries for Black birthing people in this country. And so, if, and and in those states that didn't expand Medicaid, it cuts off after 60 days. And so, you know, the data tells us that we're losing between a quarter and a third of moms after that 60-day period. So if you can get from 60 days to the full year, you can save lives, right? So I just want to acknowledge the Medicaid aspect to this. The Medicaid expansion is not in the mommy bus. We're doing everything else. So we're doing the WIC expansion. Um, we're dealing with the climate change related impacts. Uh, we're supporting the community-based organizations that have been on the ground doing this work for a long time without support. They have the best practices, understand the regional dynamics and the, the challenges um, in these communities, and they need our support. So we have grant programs to fund that. It's named after Kira Johnson, I don't know if you've ever met Charles Johnson. Uh, Charles and Kira uh, have a beautiful family. Uh, Kira died after giving birth to their son, Langston. Um, and he has started an organization for Kira for Moms to lift up this problem of maternal mortality. And he's been a great partner in our work. And I just want to honor Kira um, by saying her name in this context. Um, we are honored to be able to name that bill after her. We're actually so excited. One of our Momnibus bills have been signed into law. It's the um, Protecting Moms Who Served Act, which is to help uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs. So, you know, we talk about universal health care and we talk about federally run health care systems. Well, the VA is the largest federally run health care system That's and right. disparities That's persist. Right. And so this is an opportunity, uh, particularly given the exposures and the risk factors that this population has, our veteran moms, to make sure that we're not seeing the perpetuation of this maternal mortality disparity. That was signed into law in November of 2021. It was so excited to be at the White House with the president for that signing ceremony. Um, we are investing in growing and diversifying the perinatal workforce more doctors, more midwives, more nurse midwives, more doulas, right? We know that we need more healthcare workers and birth workers in our country, and they need to be people of color. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the data tells us that the outcomes are better when there is that congruency, whether it's linguistic or cultural or racial or you know, all the factors, we know that we can save mom's lives when we diversify this workforce. Um, we're dealing with maternal health conditions like substance use disorders um, and if we can be candid, suicide prevention. It is hugely important um, to be able to have specialists in communities that are prepared to address maternal health crises, mental health crises that go beyond postpartum depression. Culturally in this country, we're prepared to have this conversation about postpartum depression. I think that when it gets beyond that to anxiety and suicide, providers don't know what to do. And we are losing moms every day because of that disconnect. Um, in the Mommy Bus, we have a bill, Justice for Incarcerated Moms, that Ayanna Presley is leading, um, dealing with the inequities and, you know, really the unacceptable practices within our Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, we have uh, investments in digital tools, right? Telehealth has really exploded, um, particularly in the context of COVID-19. It needs to be in an equitable way. And in this space, in the maternal health space, there's such an opportunity to get these tools in the hands of moms that need it. Everything from like counting kicks <laughs> to, um, you know, other trackers, basically. So we're investing there, you know, dealing with vaccinations, um, investing in payment models to incentivize 
high quality maternity care, right? It's really comprehensive. Um, yeah. And it's outlined online if people want to learn more at our Black Maternal Health page. No, that, that is an amazing, uh, very comprehensive, very thoughtful set of uh, legislative priorities that most of which have, um, unfortunately, with Build Back Better, they've stalled. And a lot of that is because uh, it seems as though um, your colleague uh, in the Senate, Senator Joe Manchin, feels like he somehow can't explain this to um, his voters in one of the poorest states in the nation in West Virginia. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to, to talk with him specifically about this, but if you did, if you could look him in the eye and tell him about why this matters so much, what would you say? So we know that, first of all, every eligible provision of the Momnibus was included in Build Back Better. Um, everything was not included. So like the Justice for Incarcerated Moms wasn't the wicked expanse. And, and that's just because of the rules. It's not right. because of any policy disagreement. But we know that uh, these policies are broadly popular bipartisan. In fact, the Black Maternal Health Caucus is bipartisan. Several of the bills are bipartisan. And we know, for example, that leading Republicans in this country, like DeSantis, has been polling on this work that we're doing on maternal health, right? So I don't want to give an impression that this is somehow controversial or in any way uh, divisive. It is just in a larger package that is being renegotiated. So what I would just emphasize to Senator Manchin is that West Virginia, like so many other states in our country, has a disparity. And we have an opportunity to save moms' lives. When we talk about political winners, this is one that unequivocally gets the job done. He should be excited to be able to um, cast his vote in support of these policies. And I am looking forward to continuing to work with Senator Booker and our Senate colleagues and the vice president to make sure that these Momnibus provisions remain in whatever this new package looks like and is called. Um, but I, I just don't want folks to walk away thinking that this is somehow being perceived in an extreme partisan yeah. way. I mean, the Build Back Better was a huge, uh, talk about omnibus, right? A huge package. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of this, unfortunately, broke on price tag that rather than yeah. um, any of the constituent parts in, 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 in the package. And yes, I mean, saving babies and moms, there, there's like we talked about, there's, there's very little else that, that, that could um, be as important as uh, critical um, in this But time. Abdul, you know, I think we have to say, right, we're able to do this work because we're requiring these corporate tax evaders to pay their fair share, right? So at a time when insurance companies are making record profits during a pandemic, right. this is the least that we can do, right? Turn it around, make them pay their taxes so that we can save mom's lives. Just wanted to make sure what, we what covered a that. Point. What a crazy thought, um, the notion that corporations should pay their taxes too, and we should use that money yeah. to save moms and babies. Um, I, yeah. I want to, on that note, I, I want to end just um, thinking a little bit about this moment. It has never been harder to be a healthcare provider in America than it is right now. And many of your nurse colleagues are really struggling, many of them just leaving the profession entirely because of their experiences with COVID-19. What do we need to do to protect and support our healthcare workforce right now? Yes. So there's so much that needs to be done to truly thank our healthcare heroes, right? It's not a hashtag, like it requires action. Um, we're so pleased that the president signed that Laura Breen legislation into law, which offers up some crucial mental health support and funding to, you know, help folks who are in crisis. And we have a lot of healthcare workers who have seen um, and experienced tremendous trauma as a result of the pandemic. And we want to make sure that they have access to that incredible support. Beyond that, the nursing workforce 
workforce has really been stretched. I mean, in every community across our country, we are seeing incredible shortages um, and the incentives for nurses to leave their their hospitals and clinics and join a travel agency have really never been higher. Mm -hmm. And that is not really a sustainable phenomenon when we think about uh, the way that healthcare is provided in this country. And so I was really pleased that in the Build Back Better Act, my legislation to offer $500 billion dollars in support for nursing scholarships and loan repayment was included in the bill. We have never seen that level of federal investment for our nursing workforce. Um, there was another $500 billion included for the Nurse Corps, which is a, you know, a program that's already been around at the federal level. Um, that's why it's so important that we pass Build Back Better, right, or whatever is going to be called moving forward to make sure that these uh, critical funds um, are moved forward to help our nursing workforce um, and to, you know, improve this pipeline for diverse providers. Well, I really, um, I really appreciate that. I appreciate your leadership on behalf of uh, everybody in this country, frankly, but but in particular, uh, taking on um, the the provision and the support of some of our most vulnerable folks, uh, birthing people and, and and their children, and then um, the folks who are working day in and day out to keep them safe in our uh, in our healthcare providers. And you know, this conversation, I, I know that it is um, on vogue sometimes to to be. Uh, dour and down about the state of our democracy. Mm -hmm. But this conversation should remind yeah. folks that there's a lot that we can do and there are a lot of good folks trying to do it. And um, and so I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of what I know is a busy schedule uh, to, to talk to us about, about this important work. Um, that was Congresswoman Lauren Underwood. She uh, serves the 14th District in Illinois. Thank you. Take care. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Pfizer has just submitted its COVID-19 vaccine to the FDA for emergency use authorization for use in children aged six months to four years. As a father of a four-year-old, I know I speak for all of us when I say it's about damn time. That said, there's a good reason why this is coming so late and why there still might be a few hiccups. When Pfizer and BioNTech analyzed the results of their original clinical trial among kids aged six months to four years, they found that a two-dose regimen left kids two and under with a high level of antibodies. But curiously, it didn't leave kids aged three and four with the same level of antibody protection. So they had to initiate a study of a third dose, the results of which we expect in March. They found no significant side effects in any group. So considering the rush to kick kids in this age group some level of vaccine protection, they've elected to submit their findings to the FDA so that the kids can get a head start on their vaccines in hopes that they'll have the rest of their data on the third dose to submit in time for kids who need to get it. I'll tell you this, it's certainly a departure from the usual approach where you wait for all your data to come in before you submit. The FDA is just now beginning to review the data. But if it's approved, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be the first to line up my kid for a shot, even without the data about the third dose. Why? Because the evidence shows that the vaccine is safe. And I'd rather my daughter get two doses, which will offer her some antibodies, even if not at a level that is as high as two doses for adults. Better any dose than none. And if results from the studies ending in March show that a third dose remains safe and effective, then she'll be well on her way to full vaccination. A new COVID-19 variant is spreading across Europe, now representing 82% of cases in Denmark. The variant, called BA2, appears to have emerged alongside its cousin, BA1, which you all know as Omicron. BA2 appears to be more transmissible than the OG Omicron variant, though. A Danish study found that it was up to 1.5 times more transmissible, while a UK contact tracing study found that people infected with BA2 were about 30% more likely to spread it to family members than BA1. It doesn't appear to be more severe than BA1, and it's just as susceptible to vaccine-mediated immunity as BA1 is. Look, I know, you're hearing all this news about a new potential variant, we've seen this movie before, but don't despair. 
most scientists believe that it's unlikely that BA2 is going to cause another surge. And that's because the huge wave of Omicron we've just endured has left behind it a residue of immunity that's likely to prevent another mass infection so soon after. That said, it could slightly prolong the current surge as it spreads or potentially cause a small bump in cases. Last week, billionaire investor Mark Cuban launched an online pharmacy for generic drugs. The, I quote, Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, yes, that's the real name, is focused on distributing generic drugs online. And get this, rather than deal with the insurance system, they're selling straight to consumers. Here's what Mark Cuban himself had to say about it. We're trying to keep the price as low as possible. And as, as anybody who's had to deal with the claim robotic medication knows that there's, there's a lot of induced anxiety dealing with insurance. Look, I've got mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, I support anything that'll deliver high-quality prescription drugs affordably to people. That's a great and important thing. That said, this is what government should be doing, not a billionaire investor. And finally, some hopeful news. Last Thursday, President Biden announced a cancer moonshot. For all those we lost, for all those we miss, we can end cancer as we know it. As you may know, President Biden's eldest son, Beau, died of glioblastoma multiform, the most aggressive form of brain cancer, at just 46 years old. During the Obama administration, then-Vice President Biden declared his first moonshot on cancer. Last week, he was back to announce a goal of cutting cancer mortality by 50% in 25 years. One piece of the plan involves launching a new Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health to house and fund critical research on cancer and other intractable diseases. Look, it's a fantastic goal, but cancer biology is tricky. That's because there's not just one cancer. While many cancers share similar DNA mutations, brain cancer differs from lung cancer, which differs from liver cancer, which differs from breast cancer, you get the picture. There's another point here, too. Cancer isn't simply about what happens under the skin. How much skin cancer could we prevent with basic public health measures that involve increasing the use of something as simple as sunscreen? How much lung cancer can we prevent by continuing to reduce smoking? So while it's important to continue to press forward on the research toward understanding the biology of cancer, as COVID should have taught us right now, Research, development, and technology aren't enough. You can create a safe, effective vaccine in a year, but it doesn't help people who don't take it. And that costs all of us. We have to build a culture of public health such that we empower people to do the basic things too. That's it for today. Before you head out, I want to share the organizations I mentioned at the top of the episode that Tommy and Hannah are asking people to support. There's Baby to Baby, an LA nonprofit that provides children living in poverty with diapers, clothing, and basic living necessities. Star Legacy Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to reducing pregnancy loss and neonatal death, and Baby Quest Grants, a nonprofit providing fertility grants to those who can't afford costly procedures like IVF and egg freezing. Once again, that's Baby to Baby, Star Legacy Foundation, and Baby Quest Grants. You can find links to where you can support them in our show notes. American Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takeya Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 